My name's Simon. If you're new, welcome. Glad you're here. I'm one of the pastors on staff. Uh, We have been working through the book of Acts, and it's been, hopefully you've been really excited about it. There's been some really boisterous conversations I keep hearing in, in the life groups, which is good. That means you're paying attention. You're actually listening maybe to me. You're actually reading your Bible, and you're coming back with lots of questions and things that you found in that. So that's really encouraging for me to hear. I will say this. I did have a misspeak last week, and I just want to let you know. uh, We were talking about the Ethiopian. He was not an African-American. He was not from America. I'll just own it, right? It is what it is. So I said that, that was, I misspoke on that as I was talking about the context. I took our context, placed it in a different context. Sorry, it, it happens. That's, you can count that as the one for the year that I'll be wrong. <laughs> one of many, many <laughs> that will happen. Um, so speaking of just being wrong and, and those things, uh, my family, we have lots of jokes, lots of in- internal jokes within our family. Maybe you have those as well, and you'll say something, and the family starts laughing because it's connected to whatever. Um, in our house, we have three teenage boys and a wonderful young woman, and we have lots of boisterous conversations. We have lots of debates, and we're always talking about lots of things. And there's this phrase that I say a bunch, and I get mocked all the time for saying it. And basically what happens is we'll have a debate, we'll have an argument, and inevitably someone's going to whip out their phone and be like, let me just, you're wrong, and here's why. And they give you the facts, and then I say this phrase, I stand corrected. And they're like, you just don't want to say that you're wrong. And I'm like, incorrect. (laughs) That is not correct. And here's how I view it. When I say I stand corrected, what I'm saying is this. I stand completely in the fullness of my wrongness in this moment. I do not hide or shy away from the fact that you have brought me truth, which has changed my worldview perspective, which has then corrected me in front of all, and I sit in humility now under your great wisdom and knowledge. (laughs) So much better than saying I'm wrong. I'm just saying, okay? You're like, what are we talking about? Well, here's the thing. Where we are today and what we're going to focus on actually does revolve around this very idea of standing corrected, of having truth brought to a belief system in your life, which then when posed with truth, you have to make a decision. What will I do with this information? What will I do with this knowledge? So the event that we're going to look at today uh, is super profound. It's said over and over and over again in the New Testament. As a matter of fact, in the book of Acts, this event is referenced three separate times in great length, and it's not just a flyby. And so we're going to be pulling from three different passages today. It's going to be Acts 9, Acts 22, and Acts 26. That's going to give us the most full, complete picture that we can have of this event. So if I read through something and and I say one thing, like, where did that come from? It's either going to be from one of those three chapters so we can understand where it's at. So 
Uh, this event is probably one of the biggest events in the book of Acts, uh, on to, like with Pentecost and those things. This is a big one. And this is where we're going to start to see a shift take place in the book of Acts. And as we've looked at um, like Peter and John and the apostles, we're going to start to make this big shift. We're going to focus on this key individual that we're going to study today. So if you have your Bibles, I would love for you to turn to Acts chapter 9. We're going to be in verses 1 through 19. That's what I'm going to read. <clears throat> if you need a Bible, we have free Bibles underneath the seat backs, and you can have that as a gift. We just ask that you would, well, read it. Um, you can follow along on the screen if you'd like to do that, or you can use an app, whatever you're comfortable with, to follow along. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do." The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay hands on him so he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man and how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go. For he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house. And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he arose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. Let's go ahead and pray as we jump into this section. Lord Jesus, thank you for this opportunity to open your word. Anytime that we can sit under your scripture, we want to do that. Every time we come up here, we want to be saturated with your truth and your wisdom of how you love and chase after and change the hearts of men and women. Jesus, if there's anything that I have written down that is going to be distraction from how amazing you are, please take it away from my notes, my lips, my mind. Holy Spirit, something you want me to say to this particular group this morning that would help them understand and see more of who you are, that you would work through me to do that. We love you, we submit to you, and we thank you for your grace and mercy. Pray this in your amazing name. Amen. <clears throat> so Saul is the man that we read about when we were in chapter 8. 
That's where we first saw this man Saul when Stephen was being murdered during that time. <clears throat> now, Saul hasn't cooled off. Now, I'm going to try to say Saul every time, but I might slip and say Paul. I am saying the same person, but I'm going to really try to stick with Saul because it's hard to not do that. So he hasn't cooled off. He is still hating the men and women that have placed their faith in Jesus as the Messiah, as the Christ. And he has done a really good job of getting there to be a scattering in Jerusalem. Now, he may think that he's done a really good job of killing the church, but we know that that's not true. There's been a lot of scattering. But you know what? He wasn't content with that. That wasn't going to be enough for him. And so he decided that it didn't matter if they were out of Jerusalem. He was willing to go to the furthest regions of that land to find them and to continue pursuing and chasing after them. Now, he hated them so much that he actually, you have to realize, no one asked him to do this. We don't have any right of like, and the priest came and said, would you? No, he's like, I am so zealous for the Lord that I am going to go to the uh, high priest and ask him for permission that I can go and continue chasing down these men and women that would be later known as Christians, at this point known as the way, and I need letters to go to the synagogues in Damascus to go get them. And so they're like, sure, let's do it. Let's, uh, let's get them. Let's drag them back here. Let's pull them out of their places. Let's chain them up. Let's make them recant this false Messiah, Jesus. So he's granted the letters, and he goes on his way to Damascus. Now, Damascus is northeast of where Jerusalem's at. It's about 135 to 150 miles, depending on where you are and where he was going to land to get there. It could have taken anywhere from six days to two weeks to get there. It just depends on how fast he was moving and what was going on. So it was a long journey for him to get to this place. But I like to ask questions, and the question that I like to ask is, why would he go out of his way to go on this long journey to attack these men and women if they were out of his sight and out of his privy? Now, we got to remember who Saul is. We got to remember where Saul came from, like what brought him to this point in, in, these, in these areas. And so uh, Acts 22, verse 3 it talks about a little bit of his background. I am a Jew born in Tarsus, in Sicilia, and brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God as all of you are this day. I persecuted the way to the truth, binding them and delivering them to prison, both men and women. So he's saying, hey, listen, I was in this city. You know me. I was zealous for God. I was trained under probably the top teacher in that day, in that age. He's like, I know my stuff. You know that I'm after it. He would even say in 26, four through five, my manner of life from my youth. So he's like, all the way back from when I was born, from the youth was spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem is known by all the Jews. He's like, you know me. You know that I get after it when it comes to knowing God. I'm not lazy in my seeking him out. He's really saying, I lived, breathed, and ate nothing but knowing God. I studied his word. I lived it out. I wanted to be the best Jew that I could possibly be among all the people. He adhered to the law because the law meant that you could be right with God. 
And let me tell you something. He was really, really, really good at it. And the message that these Christians were proclaiming was that Jesus was the long-awaited Messiah that would save the people and save the world ultimately, and that this Jesus is now dead. They're like, no, he's alive. He raised from the dead, that he's not just the Son of God, that he is God. And so a man that has memorized huge sections of the Old Testament, like for sure the first five books of the Bible, totally memorized, not counting anything else that he may have memorized along the way as well. He's like, I love God so much. I value his truth so much. I value his word so much that I will not let these people come and deface the religion that I have. And I will not let them believe lies. I will not let them be misled. I want them to know that this is wrong and this is false. And I will hunt them down and kill them if I have to. He would have gone through the scriptures in his head. He would have probably sat in Deuteronomy 21, 22 through 23. Cursed is the man who is hung on a tree, right? He's like, there's no way that this Jesus could be the Messiah because he'd be cursed because he was hung on a tree. As a matter of fact, if you are following God and living for God, you're going to be blessed by God. You're not going to be cursed by God. But he didn't understand what Jesus was doing in that moment. It wasn't him. It was, he was taking the curses of humanity in that moment is what he was doing so just before he gets to the city of damascus he's multiple days in on this trip now we're told that this amazing thing happens around midday when the sun was at its highest the brightest that it could possibly be a light so much brighter than the sun appeared and flashed around him. He fell off his donkey or his horse or whatever he was riding at that point, and he hears a voice speaking to him saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Or as Paul would expand in Acts 26, 14, it is hard for you to kick against the goads. We'll get to the goads part in a second. Now, a couple things that I want to show here. Why does he say the name twice. It's interesting, as I studied this, and I went through a bunch of scripture this week, kind of trying to find this, um, it only, it's, it's less than 20 times that you see that when the Lord speaks someone, he uses a double, like, addressing of the name. Um, some would say, well, it's just because it's for emphasis. And I think that there is an emphasis part of it, but that's more than that. So I went through it, and there's a couple that you'll see here and see if we can find a common thread. Uh, in Genesis 22:11, 11, Abraham, Abraham. With Moses in Exodus uh, 3, 4, Moses, Moses. In 1 Samuel 3, 1 through 10, Samuel, Samuel. When Jesus engages Martha in Luke 10, Martha, Martha. Or when he runs into Peter in Luke 22, Peter, Peter. Why is he doing that? You ever use someone's name twice? So I was sitting with Justin this week, and we were, um, we were talking about the questions. And he's, so we try to sit down, and there's a lot involved with getting questions developed and getting those out to everybody. And sometimes they work better than others. Um, and by the way, I think Justin is doing a tremendous job with putting the questions together for Life Group. So if you, yeah, absolutely. Um, you know? In ministry, you got to be encouraged. So if you see him, just sit him down, look him in the eye, say, I love you, Justin. You're doing such a good job. And just hug him. Just hug it out real good. Let him know that he's appreciated here. Don't do that. We're not getting in a lot of trouble. But I was saying, just, I said, Justin, we use this double name. 
And he's like, what do you mean? I'm like, it's like this. Justin. Justin. I said, there is a, a, there's this moment where it's, it's gone beyond saying the name to like, I know you. We have a relationship. There's intimacy here. Maybe you've done with one of your children before, or someone has done that to you, or they say, Simon, Simon. It's really cutting through with the emotion of like, we're connected in some way, shape, or form. And that what he is saying, what, what this individual is saying to Saul, is Saul is like, I know you, Saul. I know everything about you. I know how desperately you want to be right with me and you, you, you pour yourself over the law and try to live the law out to be right with me. But you can't. And I know you feel that. And you need to know that I love you. Well, then we need to ask the question, who was Saul persecuting? See, these men and women that have placed their faith in Jesus for salvation are the ones that he was persecuting. So who's asking the question? Well, that's exactly what he asked in verse 5, that Saul says, um, Who are you, Lord? And the voice says, I am Jesus. I can't even begin to imagine what he felt in that moment. It was, the wind was knocked out of him. And I, I got to believe that he, his heart sank so low that he wanted to crawl in a hole and die. And we'll get to that in a second. But going back to my question, he wasn't attacking Jesus technically, but we'll find that technically he was. What I mean by that is this. The people that follow and love Jesus are often known as the body of Christ. So 1 Corinthians 12, 27 would say that. Uh, Ephesians 4, 4 would say that, that we are the body of Christ. Uh, sometimes we're referred to as the bride of Christ. Uh, Ephesians 5, 25 through 27, Revelation 19, 7 through 9, and Revelation 21 through 9. That idea of the bride of Christ being that they become, like a man and a woman, when they get married, they become one flesh, and that they're connected in that way, and so the bride of Christ is connected to Jesus. So here's what's being said. Jesus is saying an attack on me is an attack on him as well. Because we are a part of him, and he is in us, and we are in him. There is this uh, guy I was listening to this week, and he actually quoted Braveheart, and I just, I'm like, that's weird, but then I, what he said, I'm like, that's, that really makes a lot of sense. There's this scene where William Wallace, he has a secret um, marriage with this woman, and then she ends up uh, attacking one of the, the guards, and so she gets tied to a post, and she's going to be executed. And the guard says this to her just before judgment is uh, done on her. It's an attack on the king's soldier is an attack on the king himself. And that's exactly what Jesus is saying to Saul in this moment. An attack on my people is an attack on me. There is no getting away from it. And what we see in this moment is that as Saul is sitting in this, it is probably the greatest day and the worst day in Saul's life, all wrapped up into one. See, he has gotten to see the Christ in all of his glory, the risen Christ standing before him, that the light that he saw was the glory of God, the Shekinah glory pouring out, that it was so bright because he is so pure and spotless and amazing that he can't stand to even look at him. It knocked him off of his donkey. It was so powerful. 
So he sees this Christ, the one that he was anticipating that we were all waiting for to come. And then he realizes in the exact same moment, the very name that he was trying to stomp out was the Christ, was the Messiah. And he is now killing those that love and follow him. And for 400 years of waiting, he missed it. He was wrong, not them. As he is now in sin, killing and arresting men and women who actually were for God and not against him. As he thought, they're against God. They don't love God. They, they have this false belief. In that moment, he's realizing, no, I'm the one who's in the wrong here. They're the ones that are in the right. And all of his knowledge and training and insight, he missed the mark. He was unable to connect the dots of all the prophecies foretold by all the prophets. And it says that he was kicking against the goads. It's a weird term. Um, I don't think many of us use goads or know what goads are, so uh, let me just explain what a goad is. Uh, so when they were moving um, plows or carts or chariots. Uh, most likely you would have a large, strong, heavy animal, probably an ox, that would pull that cart uh, because it weighed so much. You need a very strong animal to do that. And so they would have these big, strong animals. They're also really stubborn, by the way. And uh, if they don't want to move, a thousand-pound animal, just like, go ahead, try. Try to push me. It ain't going to happen. And so what would happen is, is if they were moving along and this ox decided he wanted to stop, they needed to keep it moving. And so, but what would happen if the ox didn't want to go and you pestered the ox enough, it would kick. So it's hind quarters, huge, powerful legs would kick. They have the ability and the destructive force to break a cart, to break a plow, to break a chariot, and then you're not going anywhere. And so they needed something that would actually allow them to keep having that ox move forward. And so they had these things called goads. And a goad is real simple. It's just a really long, sharp stick. And it's right behind their haunches, right back here. And so if they decided to stop, they could give a poke. Or if they decided to kick, they're kicking into a really sharp spike. Uh, the idea would be this. Pain hurts. Don't keep doing that. <laughs> That's kind of the, the basic idea. And so what we see is that Jesus is saying to him, Saul, stop kicking against the goads. So what is Jesus saying? Here's something that I want to just like, I want to talk a little bit about when it came to Saul. Um, Saul was a Pharisee. He was around the Sanhedrin quite a bit. And so chances are he had probably seen Jesus preach at some point, right? He was around that area. Um, at, at a bare minimum, he would have known the teachings of Jesus because they were talking about it all the time. The Pharisees were constantly talking about it. It was, it was a thing that they were focused on constantly. So he could have been around there. He could have been around there at the false trial, potentially. He could have been there at the death, potentially. He could have heard the things that Jesus said at some point. And so there was truth that was being communicated at some point from Christ, whether firsthand or secondhand, that he was hearing and he was rejecting. Also would have been that he would have heard Peter's speech. He would have heard about it at the bare minimum. When he brought him into the council, he would have heard about that. He would have heard what John had to say. 
He certainly, we certainly know that he was there for Stephen, right? We know that he was right there giving approval of that happening. He was in that moment. And he saw Stephen die, and he died differently than everybody else. And so what we see is that Jesus is saying, I am bringing you the truth, but you are so stubborn in your ways that you are kicking against the truth that I am presenting to you. And you are kicking against the goads, and all you're doing is hurting yourself, Saul. That is all you're doing. And he is confronted with the truth in that moment. Now, there's this shift that's going to take place in Acts 22.10. He's not fighting anymore. He's not rejecting Jesus anymore. As a matter of fact, he says this, what shall I do, Lord? He says that, right? Like, what should I do then? And what we see is that Saul changes how he views the person of Christ. Jesus says, go to Damascus, and I'm going to tell you what you need to do. Now, the light was so bright that it says that he loses his sight. Um, it's interesting. So Saul comes in with threats and murder and aggression as this powerful man to the city. And then what happens? He loses his sight and he is led by the hand of other people in a state of humility as he comes into the very town that he was going to take care of. And now he is the one who was in a very precarious situation and who was extremely vulnerable. It's funny, Saul didn't even know and realize that he was blind in his understanding of who Jesus is. He had no idea. So what does God do? He shows him his blindness in a tangible way by taking away his sight. This is what your blindness looks like. And then he lets him sit in it. For three days, he doesn't eat. He doesn't drink. I got to imagine there wasn't a lot of sleeping going on there either. He was fasting and praying. And so I ask myself another question. What do I think he was thinking about for three days without eating, without drinking, in prayer, I got to imagine that what he is doing is going over all the scripture. You're like, Simon, he can't read. He's blind. He has memorized huge chunks of the Bible. You don't think that he is going over passages and scriptures that revolve around prophecies of the Christ and who he is? You don't think that he's replaying in his mind everything that he's heard up until this point, trying to connect the dots to see like, well, is this true in scripture? Is this true in scripture? Is this true here? You don't think that he's thinking through all these things? That's what I would be doing. Like, how did I miss it? How did I not get to this spot? And in this moment, God speaks to another man. In verse 10, Ananias. Uh, some believe that Ananias might have been the head of the church in Damascus that was there at that time. Uh, but what we see is that the Lord calls out to him, and we see this really, really cool phrase from the Old Testament pop up. He says, here I am, Lord. That would have been something that um, Old Testament uh, prophets would have said over and over again. If you read your Bible, you hear that, here I am, Lord, here I am. What did he say? Here I am. Let's do it. What do you want? What do you need? Let's go get it. Let's get after it. I'm ready. Like, that's, that's the thrust behind that statement. Like, whatever you want, I'm going to do. Now, remember, a prophet is just 
someone who is the mouthpiece of God that would take something that God has told them and then go tell that to somebody who needs to hear that message, whether it's one person or a community of people. That's all a prophet is. And so right now, Ananias is going to be a prophet of the Lord. He's going to take that message to the people. And so he says, Jesus then tells him, hey, go to Judas's house. Uh, he lives on Straight Street. I love that there's like directions. Like, here's the dude. This is the street. Go there. Um, different Judas than the one that betrayed him because, well, he's dead. He hung himself on a tree. So that's, that's not who that is. He says, go heal Saul. He's going to be the guy praying, which I'm like, wow, that's, <laughs> go to the street, go to this house. He's the guy praying in the house. Um, now, a funny thing about Straight Street, um, it, is, it is potentially the oldest street in the world that has been continually occupied. You can go there, you can go to Damascus, it's still there today, and you can see it if you want. People say, why would they name it Straight Street? We're simple people. Ready for this? It's real straight. Like, there you go. <laughs> that's why they call it. Why do they call this Elm Street? Because there's a bunch of elms there. Like, that's why we do what we do, and that's where Freddy Krueger lives. Anyway, uh, see, you don't let me get off the notes. Um, so he says, go lay hands on him and heal him. Now, I think that Ananias' response is very similar to how we would respond. You, you know Jesus. Like, hey, I, I, here I am. But you know, I'm not sure if you're aware that maybe this guy, he's the dude who's been like killing us who love you, who follow you. Like, that's him. You know that, right? It's like, you know, here's a different idea. Maybe if I sneak in there, the guy's blind. He can't see me. And I just like, you know, I'll take care of the problem. Sai, sai. Like that. Then we're done. No more persecution problem. That's how I think. I'm a bad person. He's like, no. No, that's not what we're going to do. You're going to go and do that. Jesus says, let me tell you about my plan for this guy. He has been chosen by me, that he is going to go all across the world to be my instrument, to bring me glory, to take the message to the Gentiles, that's non-Jews, to kings, and to Israel. And we actually see that's exactly what he ends up doing. And there's three speeches here that we see that are taking place, and they actually hit all those groups. And he says, and he's going to suffer for my name. God is a God that transforms people. And there is no more profound picture than the man, Saul, who becomes Paul ultimately. The one that was killing those that loved Jesus is now going to be the one that is going to write the most in the New Testament about the glory of this Christ and who he is. That is who this is going to be. Paul would recount this uh, event in his life in Galatians 1, 15 through 16. But when he who had set me apart before I, was, before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. And I love what Paul's saying is like, this was something that God was going to do well before I was born. That God knew me, that he loved me, and that he was allowing me 
in my rebellion to do what I thought I was going to do to be used by me ultimately, that all the schooling, all the training, all the studying, all the memorizing, that was all going to be used where Paul was going to become one of the greatest evangelists that was going to, to, to go through all these different areas and this great apologist at the same time that he was going to go and that he would be able to explain all the scriptures and how Jesus fulfilled all of those to show us that he was the true Christ. All of that was God's plan. And he was going to understand that Jesus lived out the law to show how God's grace, only God's grace can save us. Not by our works, but by his works, so that no man may boast. We'll get there. So Ananias trusts Jesus, which is awesome that we see that there's just this faith of like, this guy might kill me when he gets his eyes back. But he's like, we're going to do it. He goes, he meets Saul, and he lays hands on him, and he says this really important phrase. He says, brother Saul. Now, we could skip over that real quick, but here's the thing that God saves us to him, and he saves us to each other. He saves us to be in community. We are not meant to be saved to a secret one-on-one relationship with Jesus and exclude everybody else. That this idea of Brother Saul is saying that you are a changed individual and you are welcomed into the family. That God takes orphans and he makes them family. That God takes the fatherless and he gives them a father that he gives us brothers and sisters so we can walk together in unity to show how amazing he truly is and how he transforms us to be the image bearers that we were called to be and how we look different when we worship together and live together. And he lays hands on them to show that there is a relationship there, that I am a part of you and you are a part of me. And it says that something like scales fell from his eyes. The picture is that he was spiritually blind. That he'd been blind to Jesus being the Christ, being the Messiah, being the way that that was going to be salvation to God. It was very similar to the blind man who was healed by Jesus. All I know is that once I was blind and now I can... It's the same thing that's happening here in this moment. His eyes were open, and so was his heart and his understanding. Then it says that he arose and was baptized, rejecting his old thinking about Jesus and turning to him as Lord and Savior. See, last week we heard about the God who pursues, right? The God that goes to great lengths to save us, to make sure that we would know the truth of who he is. And now we have to ask the question today with that in mind. Was Saul looking for Jesus? It's a real easy answer. He was going to kill people. He wasn't going looking for Jesus. We see that Jesus went and pursued and found him. Jesus opened his eyes to the truth that he was the one true Messiah. See, Paul would talk about this in Ephesians 2. Ephesians 2, 8 through 9, this idea of Who does this work of transforming the hearts of men and women? For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the free gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which he prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. He's looking at his life. He's recounting his life and going, 
I, I can't, this does not have anything to do with me. I can't boast. My works aren't enough to merit God's love and salvation. There's, there's nothing I can do to do that. It has to be through Christ alone. It is a free gift by grace. If you do a bunch of stuff, is it grace? No. You've earned something. He's saying all we've earned is death with our lives. And so the question is like really like, where does righteousness come from? If righteousness means being right with God, where does that come from? See, the word uh, conversion is defined as the process of changing or causing something to change from one form to another. Now, oddly enough, uh, the header says the conversion of Saul, but that's not found in the text anywhere. That's just the header that's been put there, but that's what's happening. So we have to start asking the question like, what was going on in this conversion of Saul? What changed is not that God didn't love him, but how he can have peace with God. You see, he was trying to adhere to the law to save him. He thought that the law was what gave him the ability to be right with God. Uh, in Romans, <clears throat> oops, let me go back. In Romans 10, 1 through 4, he's going to talk about that. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they would be maybe saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. He's This idea that we can... Try to find our righteousness in the law does not work. We cannot do it in our own ability. We don't have it within ourselves to become right with God. We are not strong enough. And in that moment, he understood that righteousness, being right with God, can only come from God. And where did it come from? It came from Jesus. Who is Jesus? He is God. He has the perfect righteousness of God that he then gives to others. He offers this righteousness to all that would call on his name, that we would take the seat of humility, admitting that we don't have it within ourselves to earn his salvation, to earn his love, to earn his grace. And that's the big idea, is that we see is that he is experiencing unlimited grace and mercy from God in this moment, and he is overwhelmed with it. See, here's the thing. Anyone who calls on the name of Jesus will be saved. See, Paul would remember in his life, as he keeps recounting in all these different letters to these different people, in Philippians 3, 3 through 10, For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus, and put no confidence in the flesh. That idea of flesh is what we do as humans. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, I persecuted a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I count as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord for his sake. I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain 
Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. That's what he's saying. You know, this is crazy. Such a coincidence that happened this weekend. I was out with our neighbors, and she's like, I got this verse that came up, and I couldn't, quit, I couldn't stop pouring over and reading and reading and reading it. I'm like, oh, what are you in? Oh, I'm in Philippians 3.8. Like, I'm preaching that this weekend. She's like, no, you're not. I'm like, yes, I am. I'm like, wow, what a coincidence. If you were there last week, this really makes a lot more sense. <laughs> there is no sense. So you know what I got to do? She was like, well, this is what I kind of think it means. I got to explain what this means to her. This is what this means. This is what he's saying, that none of my works can earn God's favor. There's nothing that I can do that will make God good except for being in Christ alone. What a great opportunity to go like, this is amazing, God, how you've orchestrated this event to happen. See, Paul sees his old life and he goes, this doesn't work. By the way, I'm not going to give you the street name for the word rubbish. Here's what it means in a polite way. Dung, human feces. Now use whatever street term you would use there, and that's what he's really saying. That's what he counts his righteous works of the law and his life compared to knowing Christ. And that he realized he could not get righteousness on his own. In Romans 7, uh, 7 through 8, I'm not going to read it, so you can skip that. Uh, I'm not going to read it, but what's being said in that passage, he's like, I was following the law, and I got to the part that says, do not covet. He's like, and I couldn't get away from that one. So I could do everything really well, but when it came to coveting, I couldn't get around that. So the law that I was trying to fulfill, I couldn't do it because there was one that I couldn't get around. And I was still found guilty because of the law. And I, and I just, I got to start asking some questions for us today. Are we in a place where we are trying to earn God's favor by doing all this stuff? By the way, we call that religion. Doing a bunch of things to make whatever deity we worship happy. Are you trying to be a good person being a good person doesn't save you. Being a forgiven person saves you. We can't be good enough. We can't be perfect. That's the whole point of the law, to show that we couldn't. The whole point of the law was to show what sin is so we would see it and we would be confronted with that sin. It's impossible to do that, which is why we need Jesus, God, come to earth, in flesh, to take our place, to die in our stead, to give us his righteousness, that we would understand that we are loved and pursued because of this God who cares for us so much. And these three things are really taking place in the life of every believer if you ever come, that there's one, you have to have an interaction with Jesus. There has to be an encounter of Jesus of some sort. And that two, we need to sit in our blindness. We need to sit in our sin and realize that we are sinners that are in need of saving. We have to take a seat of humility at some point. And three, we have to give up our own life, that there is a sacrifice that we turn, that we give that thing up and we die to that old self because we know where it leads and we run after Jesus and put on the new self that we have in Jesus Christ. My question today is really, really simple. 
will you stand corrected with this truth about who Christ is and bow a knee to him? What will you do with the man Jesus Christ? Will you continue to kick against the goads in your life and reject him and hold too tight to your own worldview? Or will you fall to your knees and realize that Jesus loves you and is pursuing you to save you? This might be that you need to reject the fact that you're trying to earn God's favor from being a good person today. And if that's the case, we're going to have an opportunity to do that in a second. Or it might be for the first time that you've never heard the fact that you can't earn God's favor by being good and that you need someone to do it for you. And for the first time that you would bow a knee and submit and surrender your life to Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Either way, I think we've got some work to do, don't we? Let me pray. Jesus, I... Uh, Thank you for being who you are. Thank you for becoming our righteousness. Thank you for showing us who you are and what you've done on the cross. Thank you for your love for us. Thank you for showing us that you are a God that transforms lives and it's by grace and mercy that you save us. Lord, as we move into a time of communion, I ask that we would be really focused on what you've done for us as we look at where we were in our life and how you lovingly came to a place where you would call us to you. Though maybe it's not the same as we see with Saul and it's as dramatic as that, but there is no one way that God brings his people to him. But the end is still the same, that we are loved by an amazing God you've showered us with grace. I love you. Pray this in your glorious and amazing name. Amen.